Well, hey, church, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles uh, to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. We're looking at a message this uh, afternoon entitled, A Loyal Heart. And yes, you heard that right. We are going to be opening up the book of 2 Chronicles. Now, it surely must have meant 2 Corinthians, right? I mean, isn't Chronicles just a book with a ton of names and genealogies? We know we probably should care about, but typically skip over in our one-year Bible reading. Well, hopefully not, but Chronicles is so much more than just names. Uh, Those names have a grand purpose. That's not the topic for today's study, so take heart. Um, However, when you look at the, the book of First and Second Chronicles, it's an incredible retelling of the Old Testament uh, history in important and applicable detail. And uh, it's, it's something that we, we must not look past. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said to them, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And we must not get away from reading what God has written. Romans 15.4 is a way of introduction. Uh, It says this regarding the Old Testament scriptures, uh, like Chronicles, for example. For whatever things were written before, so that would be the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. You see, the Old Testament stories, they're not just these fun accounts so that we can have some uh, children's ministry curriculum. Uh, They exist for us. They they exist so that we could learn from them and then find comfort and endurance that we might have the hope of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says, Now all these things happen to them, Old Testament saints, specifically here, the children of Israel, to them as examples, and they were written, so meaning it was intentional, for our admonition, our warning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now when you look through the Old Testament, it's not just a bunch of good stories. In fact, in some places of the Old Testament, it's like, why is that even in there? And uh, a lot of that is for the purpose of writing not what to do, but hey, this is what not to do. And we're going to find something similar as we come to our passage that we're going to study today in 2 Chronicles 16. We're going to be heeding the warning of the life of King Asa. King Asa, out of all the wicked kings that Judah had within its history, and it was many, King Asa is absolutely one of the better ones. Uh, He would be in the top percentile without a doubt. However, unfortunately... King Asa, who we're going to be studying today, he doesn't end like he began. He had a great run, many, many years of righteous leading of the people of God that was well-pleasing to the Lord, but sadly, that is not the way that Asa finished. And so as we get into this kind of a a study of, of King Asa, the topic today, as you can see from the title, is regarding loyalty. We're going to be talking today, what does it look like to have a loyal heart toward God? This was something that Jesus spoke about in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24 says the following, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one 
and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's a very important verse. And according to Jesus, love and loyalty, they go hand in hand. And according to Jesus, there's no such thing as split loyalty. And this is kind of the way Jesus worked, is it not? He always required an all-in kind of attitude. With Jesus, there's no fence sitting. That's why he said things like, he who is not with me is against me. There's no sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. Now, the New King James Version translators decided to use the word loyalty here. It's one of the only times in the New Testament that you'll find the English word loyalty along with some uh, various places in the old as well. And I think it's a really good word choice. Many other translations will use the word devoted, but this word, it's the Greek word is anteko, and it means to give oneself entirely, to be fully devoted to, to hold firmly, to cleave to. This is the idea of to hold something so close that there's no room for anything else. And this is the nature of biblical loyalty. A picture of this is within the marriage relationship. You see, by nature of the marriage union, to say yes to one another is to say no to every other person on the planet. Isn't that what marriage is? I'm saying yes to you and no to everyone else. And that is the exact kind of heart that God desires still to this day. We're going to find in our reading that it's not only the heart that God desires, a loyal one, but it's the one that he is seeking after. We're going to find that God is looking for those who have a loyal heart. And this has always been what he's been seeking after since the very beginning. This is why in creating, at, created, when he created Adam and Eve, he didn't create them as forced robots. He created them with the ability to choose. Because, you see, loyalty is only as valuable as the ability to choose it. Do you hear me? Loyalty is only as value, valuable as the ability to choose it. And God would say to us, choose to be loyal to me. From the beginning, this has been the greatest commandment, at least according to Jesus. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 38. You're not going to find the word loyalty, but you are going to find the word love. And you're going to find the word all. And those things would comprise the idea of loyalty. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. We know this. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Jesus said this is the first and great commandment. You see, God wants our whole heart and nothing less. And so that's going to be the topic of today's study. Um, But we have uh, some work to do. Uh, We have some studying to do, and so why don't you go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading uh, the 16th chapter of 2 Chronicles. Now, we have a very specific verse of focus that we're going to spend a large portion of our time, uh, but we got to work our way there. We can't just get right to verse 9 because the context is crucial. And you're going to find out why as we get into this, as we kind of look at Asa and who he was and and what his life was like and what brought him to this place uh, of of chapter 16. And so um, 
We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to just read, go ahead and read the chapter to you. So if you have a Bible, you can definitely open it up. If, uh, if you do not, then you are welcome to look at the screen. Um, but this is important because this portion of Scripture will set the tone for our entire study. So let's start in verse 1. The Bible says this, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel." So that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. They attacked Eon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the city sword cities of Naphtali. Now it happened when Basha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Basha had used for building. And with them he built Gipah and Mizpah. Verse 7. And at that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the armies of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. Verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer. And put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this, and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. Verse 11, note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And so we'll close it out in verse 13 and 14. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in a bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients, prepared in a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning for him. Let's pray together, church. Father God, as we come to this portion of scripture and specifically Diving into verse 9 as well. God, we ask that you would grant us your divine revelation. Lord, we come here, Lord, not just to spectate, but to engage with you. That your word might get to the deepest parts of who we are. Lord, we know that this, this passage has been handpicked by you to be put in the Old Testament. That we might learn, that we might grow, that we might endure to the end. And so, God, we pray that you would grant us a loyal heart this day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
Now, if you're like me and you look at a passage like that, uh, you might wonder, what are we doing today? Um, Well, the way that we're going to approach this passage, and I promise by the end of the study, it's all going to come together. Now, I don't know in what kind of spirit or attitude you've come to church, but I'm going to go ahead and assume you've come to seek the Lord. And that does not mean uh, sitting and not doing anything. That means being engaged. Of course, the, the, the preacher's job, the, the pastor's job is to study and to present. Uh, and, and as we come and, and sit and learn, uh, it, it's not like going to a baseball game where you sit back and you have some uh, French fries and a hot dog. Uh, the, 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 you will get the most out of today um, if you have your Bible open or you are engaged looking at the screen. Uh, God wants to speak, um, and he says, to those that seek him with all of their hearts, he will be found by you. And so the way that we're going to approach this passage today is in stages, okay? During the first stage, we will be looking at it through a wide-angle lens, Uh, And we're going to be looking at the couple chapters leading up to this point. Then we'll take a moment to kind of break down chapter 16, what we just read. Uh, And then uh, we will spend some time looking at specifically verse 9, pulling out everything that God would have for us today. So my question to to you is, uh, are you ready? All right, 2 Chronicles 14. Uh, You can note this down first. This is part of stage one, and this is the broader context. We got to know who is King Asa in the first place. Well, King Asa is introduced to us in chapter 14. He becomes the the king of Judah. This would have been the southern kingdom as as Israel had split in two. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, During the first 10 years of Asa's reign, there was peace and quiet in the land. It had been a while at this point, years, since a righteous king was on the throne in Jerusalem. We learn there in that chapter that Asa was a great king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. If you look through the chapter, you'll find that he removed altars, high places. He broke down sacred pillars and cut down wooden images. What does all that mean? Meaning all the the worship of false gods that didn't really exist, he, he took it out of the land. And in its place, restored biblical worship. Now, during those first 10 years of peace, Judah absolutely prospered. They they built cities and they fortified the nation. But after that 10-year period, Asa's first test came in the form of a huge Ethiopian army. They had about a million men and 300 chariots. Now, in contrast, the southern kingdom of Judah at this time had a military presence of about 580,000 men with no chariots to speak of. Really, this should have been an absolute slaughter against Judah. Uh, They should have had no chance in any way. Uh, They were outnumbered in every capacity. And it was at this that Asa was put to the test. And so as they prepared for battle, chapter 14 records for us an amazing prayer. Note Note it down, 2 Chronicles 14 verse 11 records Asa's prayer in this moment, right? Ten years of peace, and now comes the test. And he does this, he passes with flying colors. Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, 
Lord, it is nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power, help us, O Lord our God, for we rest in you. And in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. It's an awesome prayer. Amazing prayer. I mean, notice what he says. He says, listen, God, it doesn't matter if they got a million or ten million. When we have you on our side, this is nothing for you. God, we rest in you. We trust you. And of course, you could assume how it ended. Uh, the Ethiopians were demolished. They fled before Asa and Judah. We're told that they could not recover because they were broken before the Lord and his army. See, the first ten years of Asa were a smashing success because he relied on the Lord. All right, chapter 15. Second Chronicles 15 takes place uh, five years later. Five years later and opens up with God sending a man named Azariah with an encouraging message for King Asa. Now, if you do the timing right, uh, he's now been reigning 15 years and Azariah comes with this message of encouragement and essentially says to him, hey, God is going to be with you as long as you stay with him. You seek the Lord, God's going to bless you and, and you're going to have his hand of protection. Um, and he says to be strong. Azariah says, don't let your hands be weakened in the work for everything you do shall be rewarded. And it was at this that Asa took even greater action to crack down on any of the false idols that were still remaining. We're told that he basically bumps it up a, a notch of pleasing the Lord. He gathers everyone together and he says, no, it's time to make a new covenant. And uh, they make a renewed covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. Amazing stuff. In fact, Asa was so committed that the author inserts verse 16 in chapter 15 and describes for us the removal of his own grandmother from royalty because she started to give in to false worship. Now that's commitment. I mean, that could provide for one awkward thanksgiving. And Asa was just in. His loyalty lied more with the Lord than even his own family. The writer sums it up in this way. Second Chronicles 15, 17 says, But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was loyal all his days. Now, what we have here, church, is a contrasting statement. A statement of contrast. When it says Israel, it's referring to the northern tribe meaning uh, under the, the, the reign of the current king then, they still had all kinds of idol worship. But under Asa, this never happened. Asa, we're going to find in chapter 16, he does not end well, but even in that, never crosses to the point of leading the nation to the worship of false gods. I'm, I want to tell you right now, the fact that God has allowed this statement regarding Asa to stay in the scriptures should be highly encouraging to you and I in light of our own downfalls and what we find from Asa in chapter 16. And so, for the next 20 years, there was no war in the land. It seems that during these years of peace, Asa begins to, though, forget where his help comes from, which is, of course, from the Lord of heaven and earth. And so this brings us to stage two, okay? We looked at stage one, that's the context. 35 years 
of rock-solid leadership on behalf of Asa. But then we find another conflict that happens in the 36th year of his reign. As we dive into chapter 16, you can note down first, we're going to look at the conflict. Again, we read this as, as we open up our time, but we find a conflict in verses 1 through 6. 20 years have passed by since chapter 15, and it almost seems like during those 20 years, we don't know what's happened, but it almost seems like Asa gets comfortable. Now, how do we know this? Well, during this time, as chapter 16 opens, we're told that King Basha, who was the king of Israel at this time, so the northern kingdom, comes up against Judah. And they, they employ a strategic military move to hinder them from going in and going out. Now, let me ask you, what did Asa do the last time an army bigger than him, badder than him, came up against Judah? He prayed. He cried out to the Lord. In fact, he's like, it's nothing for you, God. This isn't hard. God, we trust you. And so, God, would you do this on behalf of your name? Yet this time, we find nothing of the sort. You will not find a prayer of Asa in chapter 16. Not only that, but he doesn't rely on the Lord at all. But if you notice, he uses silver and gold from the very temple of God itself to bribe an enemy king of Syria to help him by attacking Israel's flank. The scariest part of this whole ordeal is that it worked. It worked. Basha backed off. He realized his other cities were getting attacked. And that's the scary part of this whole thing. The temporary success of not relying on the Lord can be a trap. We can be tempted to look at our life and think, well, it's working. Everything is all good. And there's a temptation to take the grace of God as a stamp of God's approval upon the lives that we are living. And you see, for Asa, it worked out in the moment. And it was here that Asa relied on his own understanding, where he trusted in his own ability to get out of it rather than the power of God. 35 years of relying on the Lord, but things began to change. And how quickly you and I can forget what God has done and think we've done it ourselves. You see, all of us have the very temptation that Asa gave into and is to rely on the flesh. Time and time again, the Bible warns of this reality. Think about when Moses speaks to the children of Israel, when he knows he's not going to be going into the land, to the promised land. They've been wandering for 40 years. He knows they're going to go in. He knows it's, it's going to be relatively good. They're going to conquer lands. They're going to experience the goodness and grace of God. And so he warns them. And in Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 17, it's a pretty good chunk, but it's very applicable to this topic today. He warns them. He warns them not to forget God. And you think, well, how, how could I ever forget God? Yet at times, and what the Bible warns about is that when we get comfortable in God's, even what he has, even the goodness that he's provided, our hearts can be prone to wander. Deuteronomy 8, notice on the screen, it says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, 
When your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. This is a warning that all of us must take heed to. The blessings and grace of God experienced over an extended period of time can begin to make our hearts trust in ourselves and our own abilities. And so we must counter with this every day. Every day we must go back to the scriptures and remind ourselves our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. But isn't this how our, our sinful hearts work? We experience God's grace. He changes, transforms our life. Our lives are completely different. He's using us. And if we don't check our heart, we begin to think, man, I'm doing a pretty good job. Realizing that it was, it's been the Holy Spirit in us all along. And so that was the conflict. Second, we have the confrontation. And this is when God sends Hanani, who was essentially a prophet, to speak to King Asa regarding his sinful action. Now, Hanani doesn't hold back, but speaks on behalf of God. And he really just lays it out rather simply. He says, you have not relied on the Lord, but you relied on the king of Syria. And the catch to this whole thing is at the end of verse 7. Look in your Bibles. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. It's kind of interesting. You mean Basha, the, the king of Israel, has escaped from your hand. Nope. God's saying this through the prophet Hananiah. I not only wanted to deliver you from Basha, but I wanted to even give you Ben-Hadad as well. I wanted, I wanted to do more than you could have imagined. And essentially what happened was that Asa drops the ball and instead relies on the very king that God wanted to deliver him from. See, the king of Syria is a longtime enemy of both Judah and Israel. See, when we rely on ourselves rather than the Lord, we always miss out on the better that God has for us. We often take the momentary time of success and prosperity over the long-term, way better plan that God has for us. It's at this point that Hanani does his job and reminds Asa of what happened 25 years earlier. Remember the 10th year of his reign? Ethiopians came up against him. And he reminds them here how big and bad they were, but because Asa relied on the Lord, he had gained victory against them. Now, these statements, you would hope that Asa would come to his senses, right? And repent of trusting in the flesh. You would think after 35 years of, uh, of, of really no, no issues, he trusted God, that I'm sure it was just a moment of mistake. Sadly, this is not the case, and we find the conclusion of Asa's life in verses 10 through 14, and it begins 
with his response to Hanani. Notice verse 10. Asa responds to Hanani, reveals to us that this wasn't just a one-time mistake on his part, but was a major heart problem. Because his heart was no longer soft to the word of God, and actually the opposite, it made him angry. Hanani didn't come with an opinion, he came with the word of God. And Asa even imprisons Hanani for confronting him with the very word of God. What a slippery slope sin is, am I right? 35 years, one sinful decision of relying on the flesh, the problem was that it led one to another. The small things matter. The, the, the moment of decision matters. Because the end of verse 10 tells us that Asa then began to even oppress some of the people in his own kingdom at that time. And unfortunately, Asa never recovered from this. You know, I think it's very intentional that we're, we're given a, few, a little bit more information regarding the 39th year of his reign. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that he becomes severely uh, diseased in his feet. And yet, look at how the author puts it. It's very specific. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. With how this is commented on by the writer, many scholars think that this wasn't just like a regular doctor, okay? So don't take verse 12 and be like, well, I don't need to go to the doctor. I'm just going to have faith and pray to the Lord. Okay, sometimes you got to go to the doctor, okay? Now, don't discount coming to the church and praying and having, being anointed with oil and all that stuff. But many scholars think that the physicians were not just regular doctors, but some kind of sorcerers in the land who would seek to expel diseases by charms, incantations, and mystic arts. That it's not just that he, 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 he did not seek the Lord, it's that he sought something entirely different. The problem is that it became a pattern. And what was the heart of this problem? It was the problem of his heart. You see, loyalty isn't just a one-time decision, but a lifetime of daily choices. You see, in your past, you might have committed to Christ and given him your loyalty and allegiance, but where are you today? Where does your loyalty lie? You see, when you begin to rely on yourself and it all seems to work out, beware because it can become a habit that is difficult to shake. And for Asa, it really was this snowball effect that left his legacy lacking. You know, Asa wasn't able to say what Paul said at the end of his lifetime. 2 Timothy 4, 7. This is what Paul was able to say. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Christian, is this not the goal? Are we not looking to say, Jesus, just let me end well. I, I, I might have done this or done that for you in the past. You've, you've worked through me, but God, I, and however many days I have left, would you help me to be faithful to you? You see, Asa came to the end of his life and he would not be able to make this statement. May this never be the case for any of us, where we had many years of following the Lord, but our hearts began to grow cold. May you and I keep ourselves in the very love of God. You see, we must work at it. We got to fan the flame in our own life that our love and loyalty for the Lord doesn't grow cold. Can I get an amen? amen. Now this brings us to verse 9. 
Now, without the context of the chapter and the preceding chapters, you could come to a verse like verse 9, which is a jam-packed, amazing verse. But you could come to it and misunderstand it and misapply it without the proper context. But now we have it, and there's much to be drawn from it. How might we learn from this example? Well, we know that this account has been strategically and intentionally placed in the scriptures by God because he doesn't do anything without a reason. And so as we come to verse 9 and our topic for the day, we've looked at the context, we've studied the chapter. Verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. See, now you and I must build a bridge. We know about Asa, but what about us and our lives? Well, what we learn from this verse gives us specific insight into the very nature of God. And I'm telling you, whenever you come across a Bible passage and it says something regarding what God does or who God is, don't move so quickly. It's worthy of a pause. It's worthy of some meditation. And so what does this tell us about God? Well, number one, you can note down... It tells us about the pursuit of God, the pursuit of God. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Now, this is not in reference to our pursuit of God, but his pursuit of us. Oftentimes, when we talk about the pursuit of God, it's in reference to how much we are pursuing God. But we can't start there. we got to start at the beginning. Because the only reason we can seek God in the first place is because of his initiation in our lives. Jesus tells us that it is the Father who's drawing us. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author of our faith. Ever thought about that for a moment? The author of our faith. It doesn't mean we don't have the uh, ability to choose and respond. Scripture is very clear on that. But don't get it wrong. He is the originator. He's the initiator. We didn't find God, but he found us. We didn't go looking for him, but the Bible says that he chose us before the very foundation of the world. And we only love him because he first loved us. I love that the story of the Bible is not man's pursuit of God. It's not man trying to get closer to God. It's God pursuing man. And this is the reality And it's as true in our day now as it has ever been. You see, church, God is looking. God is on pursuit. The idea here, when it says the eyes of God look to and fro, it's the fact that he's consistently scanning. Where's he looking? Everywhere. This concept of to and fro is something we also find in the book of Job. And it's a good contrast for us. Job 1.7. We know from the Bible... Satan is roaming like a roaring lion. And he too is on pursuit. He's looking, but just for different purposes. And here we're told that Satan comes to the Lord in heaven and says, from where do you, and the Lord responds, from where do you come? Satan answers and says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now, I'm very thankful that God, unlike Satan, Satan's got to, in a sense, walk places. He can only be one place at one time. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. 
which means God never overlooks anyone. I don't know who needs to hear this at this third service, but no one is out of his gaze. You might think you're overlooked. You might think no one really sees you. God is looking at your heart. And we're going to look in a moment what kind of heart, of course, he's looking for. But this reality of the God who sees is put on display in the person of Jesus. Think about the disciples. Did they go walking, finding Jesus? Did they get together and they say, hey, we got to go find Jesus? No, Jesus came to them when they were fishing, when they were tax collecting, whatever else they were doing. And Jesus said, you, follow me. He said, I'll make you fishers of men. We find that Jesus saw Nathanael before ever meeting him. John 1 Verses 47 through 49 says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in, indeed in whom is no deceit. So they've never met before. And this is Jesus' first comment to him. Okay, Nathanael said to him, basically, like, have we met before? How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Note that down, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, why does Nathanael answer him in that way? Because he knows that it wasn't just the fact that Jesus saw him under some tree. More than likely, it wasn't that Jesus physically saw him, but he saw him. He saw who he was. He saw his heart. When Jesus talks with the woman at the well, he says this, John 4, 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And notice, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Do we think of God like this? He is active in pursuit of those who would worship him in spirit and truth. Now I'm thankful though that God doesn't see as man sees. So he's not looking for great abilities. He's not looking for big donations. He's looking for, of course, loyalty. He isn't looking for perfection because that's only in Jesus. But he's looking for those in pursuit. Remember what God spoke to Samuel in that moment of decision when he anointed, when he was to anoint the new king to replace Saul? And he, and he missteps and begins to think that it's one of David's older brothers. And God says this to Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is looking. Now in this pursuit of God, secondly, what is the purpose of God? What is the purpose of God? It is to show himself strong. He's not looking for strength. He's looking where he can show his strength. Do you see the difference? And this is what God loves to do. We know this. You look at the Bible. He loves to do this. He showed himself strong in the life of Noah, in the life of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and so many more. It is what he does, and it is who he is. He's not looking for the strong. He is looking for those to whom he can share his strength, and it's only to the ones who know they need it. This was a lesson 
that Jesus had to teach Paul and one that he would be, that you and I would be wise to learn. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, and he said to me, this would be Jesus to Paul, my grace is sufficient. It's enough for you, but for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's at the recognition that we don't have what it takes that God's strength can take its proper place in our life. But we've got to understand that this strength is not given for the glory of another, but for the glory of God. You know, when you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you find this theme, this thread. And it answers really life's biggest questions of why. And it's the fact that you and I serve and love a God who is jealous for his glory. With a godly jealousy, meaning he is after it. Meaning everything God does is for his glory. And this is such an assuring reality that we can know. Because whenever something is for God's glory, it's also for our good. Because the best thing is for God to get glory. It's why we were literally created. You might ask yourself, why why am I here? Why did God create anything and why did he create me? Three words. For his glory glory. Why did he redeem? For his glory. Why will he judge one day? For his glory. Why did he choose? For his glory. Why does he allow anything? For his glory. We find this reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 29 says, for you see your calling brethren that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, It's not the all-star team. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And verse 29 sums up why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. He wants to show himself strong. You see, the scriptures tell us that God will share his glory with no man. And Asa knew this. Asa experienced this back in chapter 14. He knew that at the, no one thought Asa was such a good strategic military leader that he delivered them from the Ethiopians. Everyone knew it was God. He got the glory. And yet, what we find in chapter 16, he sought to take the glory for himself. See, God pursues us that he might fulfill his purposes in us, but he only does this for the person whose heart is loyal to him. And so third and finally, the person of God on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. This is the person that God is looking for. Now, we've talked about this concept of loyalty now, of course, we're in the Old Testament, so we looked at the Greek word when we started. That was the, that word, anteko. But it's a very similar word we find in Hebrew, and it means entirely. It, it literally just means, translated literally, it's the whole, uh, or, or constituting the full quantity or extent of something. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts the same verse, but inserts this. Only the New King James Version translators use the word loyalty, which I think is good. But it says this, For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts, notice, are completely his. That's the sense of it. 
are completely his. With loyalty, guys, there's no looking back. This is why Jesus said to the one who wants to follow him, Jesus said this, Luke chapter 9, verse 62. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want you to note this down. Loyalty has no looking back, no plan B, no plan of going anywhere else. Vance Havner, who they say is America's most quoted preacher, he's now with the Lord. He said this, and it's comical. uh, A wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. There's no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ. Loyalty and any percentage other than 100, they don't go together. And God goes after the heart of loyalty. You know, there's a really interesting story regarding the man we know as Elisha. You guys know Elisha in the Bible? So there's Elijah, right? And then there's Elisha. Very confusing uh, because they sound very similar. Um, but Elijah is the guy who, right, he, he did all kinds of stuff, but eventually he went up in the chariots of fire and, uh, and, and then he basically left his ministry to Elisha. Now, easily, it can be easily skipped over, but I want to take you, it's, it's a very strange story at first, but when you recognize what's going on, it's very powerful as well. Uh, Elisha, the call of Elisha. Notice 1 Kings 19. Elijah's getting ready to, to depart, and uh, he knows Elisha's the one to take up the mantle. And so we're told he, being Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of uh, Shabhat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. So he's, just, he's busy plowing with oxen. He's doing his thing. And he was with the 12. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Uh, Without a doubt, Elisha would have known what this meant because notice how he responds. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Now, when Elijah found Elisha, what was he doing? He was working. He was plowing with oxen. And it was with that very equipment that what he used to do, that he used as fire to to cook his last meal in a sense. It's a picture of burning the past to be able to move forward. It's like Cortez burning, burning the ships as the story goes. And I wonder in, in our life today, what, what do we need to put in the fire? What do we need to burn and let go of so that we can keep following Jesus? You know, there's an interesting account in Luke 5 where it almost seems like Peter and some of the disciples, they'd met Jesus, they'd heard of Jesus, they heard the call, but they go back to fishing. And Jesus has to remind them and they then forsook all and followed him. Now, what I love about this concept of loyalty is that God always practices what he preaches. Meaning God never asks us to do something he's unwilling to do. It's just the nature of God. And God desires loyalty. It's what he's looking for, but it's also exactly what he gives. 
all over the Old Testament, we find this beautiful Hebrew word, uh, hesed. Or if you want to have like more of an accent, hesed. Uh, and it's H-E-S-E-D in the, in the whatever you call it, uh, in English. But it's translated as mercy oftentimes or as loving kindness. What does it mean? It's his covenantal love, his loyal love. You know when it says for his mercy endures forever? It is the word hesed. Jeremiah 33 uses it when it says loving kindness. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. He is drawing us with his loyal love. And while our loyalty can waver, his never does. The Bible says that even when we are without faith, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Not only is God loyal, but there's a man who we know as being loyal in, in the Old Testament. His name's David. David is described as a man after God's own heart. I find that very encouraging given some of the ginormous sins like, uh, you know, adultery, murder, things like that. And yet, what made David's heart so loyal? It wasn't the fact that he was perfect. It was the fact that he always came back. When Nathan came to him with the word of God, unlike Asa, he repented. Go read Psalm 51. And he got right with the Lord. Because a loyal heart is not a perfect one. It is one on pursuit. God's not looking for for perfection. He knows he ain't going to find it in this room. It's Jesus. He's the one that's good. He's the one that works in us. 1 Kings 11.4 says, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. David becomes like this gold standard. Because even with his faults and mistakes, he always came back. So what do we do? How do we possess and maintain a loyal heart. Well, first, we must realize that past loyalty does not ensure future loyalty. Just because you have walked with Jesus doesn't mean you are walking with him right now. And we cannot bank on the spiritual experiences of the past to sustain us in the future. We can't. They're not sustaining. God, yes, he is, he, he's worked in the past, but God is always forward moving. And we must be aware that as we experience the amazing goodness and grace of God in our lives, we got to know our own hearts. That if we aren't careful, our sinful hearts will twist God's goodness and grace and we'll think that we did it ourselves. Second, We must understand that any loyalty we do show toward God is not a result of our resilience, but his grace. We must continually say what John Bradford famously said in the 1500s. The English reformer said the following upon seeing criminals who were being led to the execution. He said this, there but for the grace of God go I. We got to know that. We got to keep that in our hearts. 
that we, we can't puff ourselves up with pride and think that even our loyalty is, is a grace of God. Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. He still recognized, even in his hard work, it is the grace of God which was with me. And there's a balance to this. God is the one who will grant us a loyal heart, but don't think that we don't have a role. David prayed to the Lord his God that for his son Solomon that he would be given a heart of loyalty. First Chronicles 29, 19 says, And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Now this was David's prayer, but did, did Solomon have a role? Yeah, and we saw that his wives were the ones that turned his heart away from this loyalty. And so third, we must labor to be loyal. I want to write that down. It takes work. And we do this, we labor to be loyal, not by focusing on what we have done for Christ in the past or what he's done in us or through us, but what is he doing in us now? What is he doing through us now? Philippians 3 gives this idea some great uh, understanding. Brethren, I do not count myself, Paul says, to have apprehended. I have not arrived, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, even the good things, even the victories. It's not that we, we forget them and can't use them as testimonies of God's goodness, but if our language is always what God used to do, or I remember back in the day, the good old days, you know, they're never as good as, as we might think. But, but, but even the, the good old days with God, they were good. But what about the good old days coming up? What about now? What's God doing in our lives now? We must reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's calling us forward. He's calling us up. And we must press on. Remember, love and loyalty are intricately connected. We must be active in abiding in the true vine and keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now today, if you, like Asa, have had years of faithfulness in the past, you have stories, you have testimonies, but today you found that you have left your first love. That today maybe God has been speaking to you through his word that your loyalties have wavered. You've begun in the spirit, but you are now in the flesh. While you've seen what God has done in your past, you look at your life now and it almost seems like he's absent. Friend, God has not left you. It's always us who move. And if you today have left your first love, I got good news for you. You can come back. God's door, if you have breath in your lungs, you, if you are one of those prodigals or you are one of those who you know you, have, you ha have Jesus, he's in you. You've seen, you have testimonies to prove of it. But you've become lukewarm. I believe he wants to heat up your faith once again. The Bible says, last verse I want to share with you today, Revelation 2, 
verse 4 through 5, speaks to the one who've left. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you, Jesus, to one of the churches in Revelation, that you have left your first love. What do we do? What do we do when we've left our first love, when our loyalties have wavered? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The idea of that last part is, is I'm going to remove your influence. And for Asa, look, we don't know where he's at in eternity. I mean, it seems we, we, we see his past. There was fruit in his life. And just because he ended in not so good a way doesn't mean he's apart from God today. And just because you've been apart from God doesn't mean your salvation has gone anywhere. It's just time to, it's time to start walking in Jesus again. Amen. And how you do that is you repent, so you recognize and you, you then turn from those wicked ways and you go back to how your relationship with God used to be. Oh, when I was first a believer, I was, I was eating up the word of God. I was going to this class and that class, but I, I'm good now. There's no plateauing in the Christian faith. If you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. And so it's time to get up and keep going because listen, church, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And if today... You were to say to yourself, I've never given my allegiance to Christ. And I don't know how you've made your way in here, whether a friend invited you or you were driving by or watching online. But if you've never given your loyalties to Jesus, I want to tell you today, he is still looking. He's still seeking worshipers. He's still seeking those who are willing to trust him. And today... Jesus is, is telling you to come. His pursuit of you has been since you were ever born, before you were ever born. So much so that 2,000 years ago, he came to this earth to live a perfect life, something you and I cannot do and we've already fallen short of. He died a sacrificial death on the cross, but he rose three days later and Jesus says, if you believe in me, though you may die, yet you shall live. You see, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus of what he did on the cross, he will come into your life. He will forgive you of your sins. He will grant you eternal life. And the best part is that nothing can ever separate you from his loyal love. I believe today God desires in all of our lives to show himself strong on our behalf. The question is, do we have a heart ready to receive it? We're going to close with a, an old hymn. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing. Very famous, very popular for good reason. Uh, but there's a backstory to it. There's a guy named Robert Robinson years ago who wrote this hymn. And the story goes that he wandered away from God and in a spiritually backslidden condition, we're told that he was traveling in a stagecoach one day. So this is way back when. His only companion that day was a young woman unknown to him and in the providence and pursuit of God, not realizing who, who it was that she spoke with, she began to hum and sing the hymn that he had written. 
He begins, she begins to start talking about it and asking him if he knew it and, and saying how much of an encouragement it had been to her. And she asked him, you know, what, what he thought of it and, and kept kind of pressing and he couldn't kind of get her to be quiet about it. And so he responded finally. He said, Madam, he said, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago and I'd give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Gently she replied, sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. And the story goes that at that witness of hers, he repented and got right with the Lord, came back to his first love. What's amazing about it is he had felt that, that tendency to wander. Listen, our hearts, they're, they, <laughs> they're going to get out of line. But every day we come to Jesus and we put it back in line. We're going to close with just verse 3 of that great hymn. And uh, as much as I'd like to sing it, you will not want to hear me sing it. And so I'm, going to, I'm just going to close with, with saying it. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray, church. Father God, we come before you and Lord, this is our prayer. Lord, would you take our heart? Would you seal it? Where we sense the wandering. It's amazing how we can be in a moment like this and be overwhelmed with your goodness and grace. And by this afternoon, by the end of this afternoon, get our hearts on something else. We ask that you would keep us close to Jesus. That you would help us to keep ourselves in the love of God. We thank you for your loyalty towards us. That what you say you will do. We can trust you with all of our hearts. And Lord, we ought to. God, would you help us to learn from King Asa that we might not trust in our own understanding, but we would rely fully upon you. God, in the experience of your goodness and grace in our lives, may we never have the thought, I've done it myself. May we never forget you, but recognize and worship you for what you've done in our lives. And God, may we not bank on what what we have experienced. But God, we know that you're not done yet. We got breath in our lungs. Jesus has not yet come back for us. And so God, would you help us to occupy till you come? And Lord, we pray for the unbeliever that might be here in this room. We ask that you would continue to draw them. We know you're faithful to do so. And God, we ask that even this day they would not leave this building without putting their full faith and trust in you. God, you're worthy of it. And so God, we, we call upon you as Jesus the Lord, Jesus the Savior. And so God, here's our heart. And we ask that you would take and seal it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey church family, as we, as we close in, in a song of worship, um, if you need prayer for, for anything, 
I think God was speaking today because it's his word. And so if you're one of those and you've been wandering, it's time to come home. And I think there's, it's good to have a moment that you seal that in a sense. Come and pray with someone. There's going to be pastors and people here up front and they'd love to just pray with you. Uh, and if God is calling you to himself, maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Today's the day of salvation. You come to him and he will never reject you. God bless you guys.